Morning Church. Today I'll be reading Luke 15, 11 through 24. Jesus continued, There was a man that had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son son got all that he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him in the field to to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around and kissed him. The son said to to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat and cat and calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Thank you, Nash. So Nash read a portion of Luke 15, which is where we're at in our series called This is the Way as we continue our journey through the life and teachings and ministry and work of Jesus. Now, before we get into this passage, I want you to do something uh, for me. I want you to imagine two parents. Both these parents are driving cars. Both of them have, let's say, three children of various ages buckled up in the car with them, and they are traveling somewhere. Parent number one is on their way to the Palo Duro Canyon. Kids don't know where they're going yet, but... They're on their way to the Palo Duro Canyon. This parent got up one summer morning here in Amarillo and it was unusually cool and they decided to gather up the, the, the stuff that was readily available, the gear, the food, and the refrigerator and load up and they're on their way for a slow, unencumbered day of play and rest and enjoyment of beauty. And the second parent, also in a car, also with... Their beloved children also on their way somewhere, but they're on their way to the cancer center. After some scary tests the previous weeks before, this parent woke up to an early morning message from the doctor that said to drop everything and get to the doctor's office as fast as you can, whatever it takes, and bring your loved ones with you. And so you can see what's the same about these two cars, right? These two parents, these two drivers, these two travelers. They're going somewhere. They have their beloved children with them. But you can see what's different too, right? There's a very different thing happening in the hearts of those drivers. And it's all because of where they're headed. What they're, where they're going, what they're doing. You can see that the 
intensity and the focus is going to be different in each of these drivers. And it's all because of where they're headed. And so if, for example, both of them had their, one of the kids in the back say, would you tell my brother to turn down his music? It's coming out of his earphones. Tell him to turn it down. Or the young man saying, hey, I'm, I'm hungry or I'm thirsty. Can we stop at Tootin' Tone and get a snack or a drink? The reaction of those parents to those very normal things that would be happening would be very different because of the intensity and focus of the driver. And that would be because of where they're going. So the reaction of each parent would not reflect, reflect the love, the devotion, the commitment to their beloved children, would it? it would, that's not what the reaction would, the difference in the reaction would, wouldn't reflect a difference in the love of the parent. It would reflect rather the intensity and focus that the circumstances demanded. That would be the difference. Now why am I telling you that? So we're in chapter 15 today in the book of Luke, and this is after the last three weeks of covering the previous three chapters, and I'm grateful for your preachers for that time, Adrian and Brad and Tom, and they all either mentioned to me personally or right here from the pulpit that there was some tough teachings in those chapters, right? They're just, it seems difficult some of the teachings there, there's some woes and there's some warnings and there's some demands. Woe to you if you compromise. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear God who can also kill the soul. It's a narrow door you're trying to fit in. Not many are going to make it. And so you can't blame the casual reader of Jesus for reading some things in those three chapters. You can't blame them when they're so accustomed to the, the accent of love and grace out of Jesus to read these things coming out of his mouth and feel like, how do I deal with this? It seems so harsh. But it's not. Those teachings are not harsh. They're intense. They're focused. They're to the point. But you need to remember that since the end of chapter 9, we're in 15, and this is going to last till chapter 19, he has, set, he has been parent number two. Jesus is parent number two. He's set his face resolutely for Jerusalem, and he knows what's there in that cancer doctor's office. He knows what what he's going to have to face and what his loved ones in the car are going to have to face him face. And therefore, they are going to face. And he is preparing them. He needs them to know there is a lot hanging in the balance. There is an intensity and there is a focus going on here. And he knows, he knows that he's going to be ridiculed, he's going to be falsely accused, he's going to be lied about, he's going to be spit on, he's going to be physically abused, and he's going to be crucified to death, and this is going to be hard on them. This is going to be very hard on them, and so forgive him if occasionally when they ask something like, can I get a snack? I'm a little thirsty. He doesn't say, are you serious? Are you really focused on your little bitty like appetite, your need for a little snack? Do you know where we're going? Do you know I'm trying to tell you? And he knows what they need. He knows their salvation hangs on them understanding 
understanding the truth. This isn't motivated by hardness or harshness. It's love. He needs them to know their salvation. And we're not even talking about eternal salvation, though it's important for us to know that is in the balance. That's how weighty, that's the stakes of what's going on in Luke's story. He makes no bones about it. That's what's at stake for you and me. This is important stuff. But he's not even just talking about that. He's talking about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. What they're going to have to suffer in this life as well. And he knows what they need. And it's him. They need a death grip on him. They need absolute loyalty to him. This is no more unloving when he says things that sound demanding than if one of those parents driving sees a a wreck is about to happen and they scream with bloody murder and urgency, Hold on! That is, if you just take it out of context, man, that is a mean parent. So harsh, so hard, so demanding. That's love. That's what you have when you have what seems hard. I, I could use tons of examples from these last three chapters. There are so many. But I'll just use the last one just back in chapter 14 that Tom mentioned. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. He's not threatening his people. He's not trying to take away everything that's fun. Let that go and just hang on to me, to God. He's not trying to ruin your life. He's trying to save it. That is not him being harsh. He is saying it bluntly and urgently because the story demands it. Where they're headed is demanded. And he does it not because God is mean, but because God is love. Because God is love. And just to make that point unarguably clear, I believe Luke follows up those three chapters with Luke 15. Just to make it unarguably clear, he puts Luke 15 right here. There may be no chapter in the Bible that is more treasured than Luke chapter 15. Barclay says that chapter 15 has often been called the gospel in the gospel, as if it contains the very distilled essence of the good news that Jesus came to tell, tell, which is the revealing of who God is. And Luke 15 silences any voice, any thought that God is harsh. Luke 15 may be responsible for the winning, for the conversion of more sinners than any single text in scripture, including the story of the crucifixion in its raw form. Because the crucifixion is reflecting this heart, this kind of God. Now, everything in this, we, we just, uh, can, I just don't have time to go through all of this chapter and that's just a crime. But it all starts, everything in this chapter hinges on the first two verses. This is the setup. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now that word welcome, people smarter than me tell me that doesn't do it justice. It is welcome, but it's like this, he eagerly receives is what that word means. So this 
in that first century, not to you and me, but to the first century reader in the Jewish system of thought and religion and, and just every thought about God, this is already controversial because Jesus is supposedly this great man of God representing God. He's made some pretty big claims and yet the other religious leaders totally are discrediting him. He, they don't even have to explain it. Everyone understands. This man hangs out with sinners. That's a disqualifying statement. He eagerly receives and eats with sinners. He's breaking all kinds of rules here. Chief of which is, in shocking fashion, he's welcoming and eating all, with all the wrong people. Those who are not spiritual enough, those who are not religious enough, those who are not moral enough, those who clearly and without question, based on any objective reading of the law, any objective reading of the Bible, and based especially on the religious leader's interpretation of that Bible, they are not good enough. The, the Greek word for sin, I can't remember what it is, but I remember what it means. It means missing the mark. And the, he eagerly wants to hang out with those that are not good enough. That is, that is, you and I are far enough along in the Christian story that maybe we say, of course, but not them. They wouldn't have done that. This would have been controversial, provocative, ridiculous, and disqualifying of Jesus. And so the question that is created by Luke telling that, those two little verses is why? There has, there's an embedded question here of why. Why is a man of God who represents God eagerly desiring to be with all the wrong people? No, he didn't just allow them. He eagerly wants to fellowship with them, to receive them, to eat with them, to include them, to be a part of them. Why is the question that's set up by Luke with these two verses? Now I want to pull, pull over and park right here for a minute and make an application. That This is an emotional chapter, okay? So forgive me. So in the narrative, Luke has the Pharisees creating this question, but they're not the only ones that ask this question. Why would God hang out with sinners? Why would God hang out with me? After what I've done, after I look in the mirror and I see finally who I am, why would Jesus eagerly receive me? Why would the Pharisees aren't the only ones that argue against this initiating part of this chapter? We do too. Anyone, everyone that I've ever ministered to or been friends with that has taken seriously their sin, their missing of the mark, asks this question when they are faced with the gospel. To the point that they might even refuse the gospel. Carrie, would you throw me that water right there? Thank you. Didn't, didn't trust your arm? <laughs> or my hands? <laughs> Why? I, I, here's, here's where it gets a little emotional for me. My oldest son, Shay, and I asked his permission to share this. Of all my kids, he... He has grown up always being, I don't know why, really hard on himself when he misses the mark. It can be sin or it can just be some expectation. He just, he's always struggled with this. I've always, as he's grown up, I've seen it since he was little, I've seen it. And it's just, it manifests itself in, uh, 
in this tender way where when he does something wrong, he says he's sorry like too many times. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, like he's trying to, trying to receive. And then he follows up with other questions. Like, you forgive me? Do you forgive me? Yes. Like to the point I'm angry at how many times he's asking. Talk about self-defeating. But he needs to hear it. I remember him crying when I got on him about how many times do I need to tell you? I go, Dad, you know I need to hear it. Little kid, he's saying, I've explored. What have I done? Because none of our kids get through unwounded by us. What have I done? I've tried. I'll share the gospel with him in all these creative ways. I try to manifest it as a dad. And, And he'll, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. But he walks out. It's just not received something in him. Remember one night, I can't remember, it was late elementary or early middle school. He was dealing with that and I heard a song on the radio and I bought it and I went in that night like I did with my kids when they were young because that's where you get all your best conversations, parents, is when they're bedtime because they don't want to go to bed. So that's when I would always come in and say, hey, you want to talk? Yeah. <laughs> Because they get to stay up. And we had our best conversations there. Highly recommend it. So I went in and I said, Shade, I've got a, got a song I just want you to listen to. Some of you know this song. You remember it? was by Casting Crowns. It's called Who Am I? I, I hit play. Shade's little kid. He, he's not very focused. We're on to the next thing before we're done with the last thing. And then on to the next thing before we're done. I mean, he's just... It's all over, but I play this song and he's, he's kind of listening. Okay, dad, you know, humor me. And the author of this song says, it says this, it says, who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose the light to, to light the way for my ever wandering heart? Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love and watch me rise again? Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? As this played, my son got still. And I felt his face bury into into my shoulder. The Pharisees aren't the only ones that ask this question. Are they? Why would Jesus reflect a God that eagerly wants to hang with sinners? And so Jesus answers in the rest of the chapter with three parables. Three parables, we won't go through all of them. It's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son that Nash read a portion of for us. We call it the prodigal son. And all three parables have these things in common to answer this question. Something of value was lost. It was valuable enough that it was missed. It was missed 
And it demanded the dropping of everything and a full-on eager search to find it, to locate it, to see it. And upon the finding, and in each story it is found, upon the finding, there was always a party. It wasn't end. It didn't end when, like for you, when you find your keys. Oh, and you go on with your life. It ended with a party, and the party represented not what was going on in that house, but what was going on in heaven. That's what's happening when Jesus is eagerly receiving and then eating with sinners. That's what it's like. That's what is happening. That's why it's happening. That's why Jesus does it. To answer the why Jesus was eagerly welcoming sinners is the same answer as to why God eagerly welcomes you. And why shade can fully receive it and has his tears dried. Because you, here's the answer, you even as a sinner have great value. And when you are lost, that is you are disconnected from the Father, You are not where you're supposed to be. You're not where he designed you to be. When you are lost, whether you're running after your own way or whatever you're doing, you are missed. And you are worth a great, great rescue mission. One that distance spans farther than you can imagine. It spans heaven to earth. That's how important it is. That's what it's like when he's receiving sinners. One time, I was... I was after a girl's heart and she was flying somewhere and she was going through Dallas and I drove all the way from Houston back when you could go into the gates. I drove all the way to Houston just to hold her hand as she moved from one gate to another. And then I drove back to Houston. What was I trying to communicate? That's nothing compared to the rescue mission Jesus threw out for shade and for you. And for me, there is no greater cause for joy in heaven than what's happening right here. This is where the party is described and the reason for it. And because he probably already knew, just like with me with shade and God with me and God with you, he probably already knew he's going to have to repeat himself. I'm going to explain why, but I'm going to tell three stories because I know I'm going to have to tell them over and over again. And so he does that because we just can't understand why. This Casting Crowns lyricist in the little bridge, he tries his best to argue against the reasonableness of this love that God has for him and is showing in this story and is showing in scripture and is showing in his life. He tries to diminish himself. He says, who am I? I'm a, I'm a flower quickly fading. That's how much value I have. I'm here today. I'm gone tomorrow. I'm a wave tossed in the ocean. That's the strength of my resolve. I'm just tossed around in the ocean. I'm a vapor in the wind. He knows. He's looking in the mirror just like you and me know. We know how insignificant we feel and how insignificant we are properly understood. We, We know. We look at what we've done and we do that. But he has to finish by admitting the conflict he feels when he sees Jesus, when he sees him eagerly welcoming and eating with him or her. He, he has to say it. He says, still, you hear me when I'm calling. 
that, that doesn't jive with how insignificant I am. You catch me when I'm falling. I, I don't know why you would go out of your way to do that. And here's the clincher. You've told me who I am. Here's the answer to why Jesus is eagerly receiving sinners. Because I'm yours. That ownership that God takes of you trumps everything. There's a reason that the parable of the lost son in these three parables gets all the press in Luke 15. It's because it gives us the most detail. And perhaps the most gripping detail is the description of what you as a famously fallen son or daughter of God have to look forward to should you decide to go home to him. You, you don't have to guess. And you sure don't need to be reasonable. You need to trust Jesus as to what you can expect should you decide to go home to Jesus. Or if you ever have and you didn't allow yourself to experience the God he's about to describe, then you experienced the wrong God. This is what you can expect. He tells three parables. My theory is because he knows he's going to have to repeat himself that he loves you. But then in this last parable, he gives us these six emotion-filled pictures. Like, this so emotional. These six emotion-filled pictures of, of that love. Not only does he love you, I've told you three times, I'm going to show you, I'm going to just emphasize, I'm going to, it's almost like he's working on your emotions. <coughs> if you're really ready to finally come to God, here's what you'll find. And I have a study of this passage by N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright to thank me, thank for slowing me down enough to see this. It's in Luke 15. Here's picture number one. Listen. The son got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. It's picture number one. I think mean, there's not much of a first century picture of a father doing his dad wrong that could be worse than what you just heard Nash read. It's just that, that's the point. He's trying to paint a picture of just absolute ingratitude, betrayal, stealing almost. <clears throat> Unforgivable things <clears throat> for them to be dealing with. And yet when he decided to come home, his father was already watching for him. His father was already watching for him. If you decide it's time for you to come home, that's what you have to look away, that's what you have waiting for you. He is not so harsh and fair that when you, his beloved, does him wrong, treat him unfairly and ask, just give me what I deserve, and you don't really deserve it, but he gives it to you and just sends you off and forgets about you and writes you off. That's what we might do to our kids, but that's not. And it would be defendable and right. And that's what this story would demand. But that's the shocking nature of picture number one. He sees you 
Not one moment since you've left him has he not gone. I dropped my son off. The reason I missed the first two weeks, I dropped my son off in Oregon. And I realized when I left there and I came back, my heart now reaches all the way to Oregon. In this way, I can't describe. And that's nothing compared to this picture, number one. You left him, he never left you. He was watching the whole time, looking, eagerly, desiring. Picture number two, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Some of you remember me telling you ever since I learned the word compassion in the Greek, it's one of my favorite words, it's splunknen. It's this feeling of love that is a physical sensation down in your guts. It's a, it's a love that is physically manifested. It's, it's this massive feeling of longing and that's what he uses. He uses that word. When he sees his son, he, it's this inner emotion that the father feels. I've been with parents who've had children run away. Some of the stories, all the stories are different, but some of the stories of these children, of, of what they've done to their parents, of what they're leaving, that their parents are providing them. I mean, the, the lack of perspective, the lack of gratitude, the selfishness. I've been with those parents. Some of you have been those parents. Days go by. I mean, the, the worst thing they can do is just leave. Right? Because it's my kid. That's my kid. I don't know what's going on. Can't keep them safe. And then finally, days, who knows how long, the phone rings. A meeting is set up. And when that happens, when the son or the daughter and the parent see each other, this flood of emotion, the flood of longing, the the flood of splunknen, this flood of compassion... It trumps, it blots out every single thing that kid has done to get to this moment. That's what you can expect should you decide to go home to God. Totally unreasonable, borderline irresponsible parental love. That's picture number two. Picture number three, still in verse 20. And he ran to his son. I read this one different now. Now that I'm 54. Than I used to read when I had a young kid and I was a young man. And, and like me, this guy might be kind of middle-age-ish. Like me. I mean, I've, he's got, I've got two adult sons. I'm old enough to have two adult sons. He was old enough to have two adult sons. Maybe like me, his hip is starting to show up and complain. To where running isn't, it's not really, it doesn't look right. It sure doesn't feel right, but here's this older man. I mean, he, now, unlike me, he is, he's got some dignity going on. He has an estate. He's got slaves and servants and hired people to do what he wants. He's got grown sons that he had employed. He's probably the office guy now. You know, he probably dresses nice. He probably doesn't sweat. And yet, Jesus shows a picture of this guy running. Now, I'm, I'm adding to the text here, but I don't think it's unreasonable. The only reason an older person runs is either because they're in a lot of danger or, or they 
appear so overwhelmed, so full, so happy that they must. And that's the picture here of him pulling up that, pulling up his robe and running when he's a long way off to his son. His son saw his elderly dad running to him. That's picture number three. Picture number four. Still in verse 20, and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. I bet you could uh, find your tears too if you just imagine, and I know some of you don't have to go far to imagine this, that one person in your life that you wish would come home. You just imagine that one person in your life that you want to come home, whether it's come home from sin or come home from alienation or come home from addiction or come home from selfishness or pride or unbelief, whatever it is, if you just imagine that person coming home with now the fully acknowledged pain of what they've done all over their broken face and you getting to be the person that pulls that person close, embraces them and kisses that face and medicine pours through you into them. Wouldn't you want to be that person? That's the picture here. And you see, Jesus doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to do all this. Goodness. He didn't have to, he didn't have to add the kiss. The embrace would have been enough. He didn't even have to add the embrace and the kiss. The running to him would have been enough. He didn't even need to add that. He, he saw him from a long way off and was happy. That's enough. Unless it's not. Unless he would be cheating us of the picture of the Father for us. Unless he had to do this. He had to draw this picture in order to try to reflect to us the kind of God that we have. He didn't have to do this unless, unless he did. And I, and I love what he's doing here because some of you had fathers, they never embraced you. They never kissed you. Some of you had fathers that they did, but they did it in wrong ways, in appropriate ways, or father figures that did it. There's, there's this massive picture here of reparenting, it seems like, going on that could be happening. That no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, a broken, wounded, sin-filled, and or rebellious son or daughter is being healed by this pure, perfect, healing, undeserved, heavenly love. We're just getting all personal today. The son makes his well-rehearsed confession right here in the story. After this picture, four. I imagine his dad's reception has already blown it for him. It's already kind of messed him up emotionally. He's probably already getting the kiss and getting the, not knowing what to do. But this well-rehearsed confession is all the more true after this. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I mean, I was already not worthy. But now after all this, after this reception, after this 
I am not worthy of this. It's more true for him. He's got more reason to lie in his bed with shade and go, what in the world? After what I've done, why would he treat me so good? It's all the more true. And so he confessed, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to become your son. And I'm surprised Scripture doesn't just have him being interrupted there. Because it's as if he didn't even hear it. The dad says in verse 22, he says to the slave, quick, bring out the best robe. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Here is the lavish love of the father. Barclay says that the robe is like, it's about honor. You remember the story of the, of, in the Old Testament. It's okay if you don't, but there's this old story of the coat of many colors being given to Joseph. That was a significant move for the father to do for his son. It caused all kinds of family issues. It's such a powerful emblem. And he didn't even hear his confession. He says, get him that robe. The ring, when you give your signet ring to someone else, you're, that's a sign of authority, Barclay says, that if you give your signet ring to somebody, that gives them the authority to do with your estate whatever you could do with your estate. And then the shoes, that's a sign of sonship. I mean, he's asking to just come back as a servant. No. Servants, slaves, they don't wear shoes. Sons do. That was an act of son. No, you're my son, is what that said. Here we have the lavish picture of a full, enthusiastic, unrestrained restoration of a sinner to the father. That is the way the father is when you come home. Let me just ask you this. Will you come home? Will you come home? Knowing what you can expect now, tell me, please, because I really want to know. Why wouldn't you? Who in the world would say no to that? Why wouldn't you come home if you knew that's what you'd be coming home to? What story do you tell yourself, Brian? What story do you tell yourself, Shade? What story do you tell yourself, church, sinner, that is more powerful than the Bible's depiction, than nothing short of Jesus' depiction of what you can expect in spite of your sin. What is it that you would hang on to? Just know, if you have ever decided, if you made a decision, I am done with God, I am leaving God, you just need to know, this is who you're leaving. This is what you're leaving. Not some warped view that you got from broken Christians. Not some warped view that you see depicted in the movies. None of that. This is who you're leaving. And I just want to know, why would you ever do such a thing? That's Luke 15. Will you come home? I'm going to ask our elders our ministers and their spouses go ahead and move around the room here and if anything's touched you today and if it hasn't what's wrong with you (laughs) but if there's anything that's touched you today about this story that Jesus tells us about our God that you just need to touch these are these are these willing ambassadors of that God willing to be present with you as you 
picture that as I give you the last picture. Picture number six. It's in verse 23. And it's the celebration. Where the dad says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And then he says, why? And this is one of those, what he says next is one of those verses that has just taken out of its context because of my recent experience with my son has a little bit more meaning. I'm just warning you in case something explodes out of my eyes or nose again. (laughs) For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found church at the core at the core of shades hang up in that bed at the core of my question why in the world would this be offered to me as a sinner I'm all the wrong people I'm not good enough why would he do this underneath that question is a more basic question that I think anyone who seriously has a spiritual awakening must ask what must I do to be saved that's what's there and we're so scared we haven't done it and we can't do it what must I do to please that father we are told right here in Luke 15 that the answer is not what most people try to answer that question with it is not being good enough it's not being sinless enough don't sin one more time from right now to the end of your life And that's not what's going to please the Father. That's not what's going to get you salvation. That's not what's going to do it. No amount of works. And praise God, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I'm glad that's not the way. But that is not the way. Luke 15 should forever kill any, any little bit of that thought entering your mind unchallenged ever again. If you want the party to be held in heaven, if you want the reason for the celebration among the angels and among the Trinity and among the saints, if you want that party to be happy, and we're told what does it, it is not you being good enough. That never causes the party. It is you coming home to God. Just as you are. It is you taking the hand of Jesus, the great rescue mission that was done on your behalf and grabbing his hand and letting him take you. Just follow him. Stop being good enough. Just follow him. You know where he'll take you? He'll take you to a who. He will take you to the Father. He will take you to life to the full. If you want to please God, if you want to give him a reason for throwing the party, you can do it. It's not by cleaning up your act by coming home. He'll take care of that. All you got to be is willing. He'll be fruitful. So if you need this God, I know I do, he's offering himself to you. You're his. And he can be yours. And so let's stand and let's sing of this great love, listening to what we're singing And let the Spirit bring you home, whether it's for the first time or bring you home again. Let's sing.